why he chooses to pour out his blessing in a given situation or a given life, that's his call. And all I tried to do was take care of as much mucky muck and create as little mucky muck as possible. I just want to say to Victoria and to your family, um, you're going to fall in love with the people here. And there's a reason I've fallen in love with the people here. Am I not to do list when I retired from congregational ministry? I don't want to speak in churches, especially on anniversary service. I don't want to speak in a lot of churches where I don't know people. The reason you're going to fall in love with the people here is they're going to love you like no other. And that's been my experience. So I, I need to ask you some tough questions. And I need to warn you in advance that you may be hesitant to answer these questions because you may consider them embarrassing to me. Not to you, but to me. But I'm going to ask them anyway. And I need a show of hands. How many of you people know that I'm overweight? <laughs> Come on, I, I want to show of hands. I need you to be honest. Okay? This, this may be a little less embarrassing to answer. How many of you people think I know that I'm overweight? Okay. One more question. I've never met a group of people that were as hesitant to answer those questions. So here's the third question. How many, think of, how many of you think that I'm pursuing a rigid course to address my fact that I'm overweight and I'm really diligently pursuing that course. I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't bring my wife for this reason, for this week for that reason. She would take those of you who answered yes to that to the shed. <clears throat> so maybe this is what we need to look at. If you know I'm overweight, by the way, my doctor does as well. And I know that I'm overweight, and I'm not pursuing some diligent course of taking care of that problem. The question is this, why? I think it boils down to a very simple principle that's very clearly outlined in Scripture, and I'm going to share that with you in just a moment. But let me tell you just one more story. I've worked very hard with a beautiful intelligent, gifted young woman who is going through one of the roughest segments of her life that she's ever gone through. And the doctors in London have finally diagnosed that she is suffering from psychogenic seizures. I'd never heard or really studied that before. But it's not epilepsy, that's a physiological seizure. It's psychogenic. There's something in her mind, in her head, that is driving that. And the course that she's asked me to engage in with her is to try and identify where there may have been trauma in her life that might be the cause of this. And I'm having a very difficult time these days convincing her that it probably goes back to an experience she had in her childhood. Because at this point, uh, we talk about the situation she's facing. She's never 
smart enough. She's never beautiful enough. She's not a good enough mother. She's not effective enough at the job that she has when she was able to pursue her job prior to these psychogenic seizures. And when I have the conversation with her, I'm tempted from time to time to throw a little verse of scripture into her lap. And every time I try to do that, she says, don't bother giving me any more scripture. I know them all. Did you hear that? Don't bother giving me another scripture because I know them all. In fact, she probably can recite most of the ones that I would give to her. But here's the question. Why does she still struggle with bulimia, with self-hatred, with a sense that she will never be good enough at anything? She will never be enough. And the answer to that lies simply in this. She knows the truth, but it's not real. This is the principle that I want to work with you on this morning. And if we can get that, this is the key truth. If we can move it forward there just to get this. You can know something is true, but unless it's real, nothing changes. I know I'm overweight. I have lots of people in my life who remind me of that. But I'm not doing anything about it right now. Because at this moment, it's not real. Does that make any sense? Does the principle make any sense to you? You can know something's true, but unless it's real, nothing changes. I want to take you both this week and next week. By the way, this is a warning. You get me next week as well. Um, I want to take you in both cases to a very familiar scripture. If you've hung around church at all, you're going to know today we're going to go to John 21 Next week, we're going to go to Matthew 14. These are going to be very familiar scriptures. And what I have a tendency to do when I sit down in my private life and want to read a scripture that I'm very familiar with, read it, heard it numbers of times, I always have to offer a prayer. And I want you to offer this prayer as I read you through this scripture this morning. And the prayer is this. Lord, Help me to see the one thing I most need to know right now in this scripture. Does that mean, can you do that with me? Uh, can you do that with me? Lord, help me to see the one thing you most need me to know in this scripture today. So we're going to turn our attention to John chapter 21. And I'm just going to read some verses there. And that if that prayer is on your heart, God is going to deliver to you Something you need to have right now. It may be something you've never seen before. Never, you've heard the words, you know it, but now it's going to become real. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. So let me just remind you, this is after the resurrection. Jesus had been crucified, died, buried, brought back to life again. Several of his disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. It's kind of discouraging when you go fishing and catch nothing, right? 
Well, it's even more discouraged when somebody else does. They caught nothing all night. Here's the rest of that scripture. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, Fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. And he said, Throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. Uh, can I pause here for just a moment? You understand that some of these guys had made a living fishing before this moment? And if I was one of them, I would yell at that guy and I'd say, hey, you stick to whatever it is you do, we'll stick to fishing because we know fishing. And I would have been offended that he would ask that question and then follow up and say, throw your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did and they couldn't haul in the net because there's so many fish in it. Here's, here's a moment that becomes very strong in the rest of the final part of this scripture. Then the disciples, uh, disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore for they were only about 100 yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them fish cooking, cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. And the scripture ends this way. Listen to this. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard, dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared, dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. And the final verse is this. This was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples since he'd been raised from the dead. I'm just interested. Was there one or two words or an idea in there that God spoke to you in a fresh way about? How many of you would say, there was something I saw there that I hadn't seen in a long time? Maybe never seen. <clears throat> I could not possibly tell you how many times I've read this scripture or heard it read. And one day I'm sitting down and I'm reading it and the prayer on my heart is simply, God, show me something I need to know right now that I've never seen before. And this is what he threw at me. Can you move that forward just a moment? What he threw at me was this. This is the third time that Jesus, that they had encountered Jesus after his resurrection. So let me put it this way. Do you think it's possible that the disciples knew that Jesus was alive? But it wasn't real. At least until this encounter, it wasn't real. I simply want to suggest to you that on the previous two occasions that they had seen him since he'd been raised from the dead, they knew that he'd come back from the dead, but it wasn't real. And there is something that happened in this moment that was very, very powerful for them. I don't know what it was. I don't know exactly what it was that 
all of a sudden caught their attention and turned something that up to now had been true into something that became real. But it did. There's power in this whole concept that sometimes we know a lot of things to be true, but until they're real, nothing ever changes. I don't know if we can replay this for just a moment and look at it and say this. If anybody, any of you have ever lost someone really close to you, someone who's died, you know what the grieving process looks like. It's a, it's a period of time. It takes some time to process. Depending on how close that person was, you, the longer the likely grieving time is. These disciples are in a grieving time. For three years, they have diligently followed one that they thought was going to deliver something new and exciting, and they were going to be part of, and now he's crucified and dead. Ah, but on two previous occasions, they've actually seen him alive. But it wasn't real. And then in that moment, there's something that changed. I want to tell you a story. I've shared this with some of you, with many of you before, but it best illustrates the story of a friend of mine, Roger. Because it so clearly illustrates this true, real concept, I need to tell you the story once again. Roger was eight years old, loved to go to his grandma's house because grandma served cube steak and allowed him to drink. Donald Duck orange juice for supper. One day, Mom says, Roger, I need you to get in the car. We're going to Grandma's house. He's excited. But there's something different about this trip. And the difference is this. There's silence between his mom and dad, and he can't figure it out. And it's a long drive. And after the long drive, they pull into Grandma's driveway And his mother says to him, Roger, stay in the car. And his dad gets out, takes three suitcases out of the trunk of the car, and disappears. And Roger will not see his dad again for 32 years. And as mom is backing out of the driveway, she says to her eight-year-old Roger son, she says, Roger, today you learn what it is to be a man. And on the way home in the silence of that car, Roger made a decision that would affect the rest of his life up until a turning point. Roger made the decision that I need to work twice as hard to be half as good as anybody else. Did you you hear that concept? Can you imagine an eight-year-old child figuring that out because of a comment his mother made? Eight-year-old kids do that really well. I need, to be, I need to work twice as hard to be half as good as anybody else. And God calls him into ministry. So in ministry, he becomes a performer. He's going to be working twice as hard to be half as good as anybody else. And Roger just about kills himself. And one day he gets the invitation to come to Pastors of Excellence. Chris is familiar with that. Joyce is currently involved with us in Ashton, Ohio, in that program. And he said, I actually, before I went to Passive Excellence, I went over to my bookshelf, and I thought, there's got to be a place on my shelf to have a binder 
And on the spine of the binder, it's going to say, Pastor of Excellence. And people are going to have to notice that. And he said, I actually went over to the wall where I have all my certificates, and I made room on the wall because you've got to get a certificate for going through this. And people are going to be able to come in and see Roger, Pastor of Excellence. But he came to the program broken. Broken by the fact that he'd spent his entire life from the age of eight working twice as hard to be half as good as anybody else. <clears throat> and in a part of the program where we dig deep into some of these life-shaping experiences, Roger was sitting there and he was asked to write a lament about something that had wounded him deeply and he wrote about this experience of watching his dad disappear with three suitcases, never to see him again for 32 years. And as you read that to the other group, an Anglican priest, this is very interesting, who happens to minister not very far from here, came around the back of the table, and as Roger read his lament, he wrapped his arms around Roger and he said, Roger, I want to tell you about a father who has never left you and has loved you from the very first moment of your life. And Roger began to weep. Because God the Heavenly Father that he had described in great detail to everybody else in that moment became his father in a way that he'd never experienced before. He knew that God was a Heavenly Father. He delighted in telling other people about that. But until that moment, it wasn't real. So if you've got the concept, and I think we have, I'm going to very quickly wrap this message up by saying there are some things that become pretty obvious when you move from a place where you know something to be true so that it becomes real. And here's one of them. I'm able to love more fully. I'm able to love more fully. Can we pull that up? I'm able to love more fully. If, if you go home and you have a chance to take the scripture beyond where I took it this morning, you'll discover this, that Jesus now begins a conversation with Peter. And the conversation is, Peter, do you love me? It's a simple question. What do you do when somebody else asks you, somebody in your life that really matters to you, what do you do when they ask you, do you love me? Well, you know, something like this. Of course I do. This is another reason I didn't bring my wife because we've always had this conversation. She said, why do you find it so difficult to tell me, tell me you love me? I said, because I told you that when we got married and I don't have to repeat it unless I change my mind, right? <laughs> do, you know, do you know why I don't? tell people that are really important to me more often that I, I love them? Because I grew up in a home where you didn't do that. I never heard anybody in my whole family tell me they loved me. So I didn't, do, I didn't learn how to do that. It wasn't that I grew up in a bad family. It was just a family that didn't do that. And every child has a God-giving longing with inside them to have somebody step into their life and say, I love you and always will. 
So now in this moment, Christ steps into Peter's life and he looks him in the face and he said, do you love me? And then he responds to that because Peter, very typical, says, of course you know I love you. And Jesus said, then I need you to do something. But three times he asked the question, and my point is this, why did he ask the question three times? Because he had to know that when Peter said, of course I love you, it wasn't just something he knew, but it was real. As much as Roger had been a loving pastor for many years before he ever showed up in Ashland, Ohio, it wasn't until he sat at the table and poured out his broken heart and had a nice little Anglican priest wrap his arms around and tell him it wasn't until that point he knew that it was real. Chris is well familiar with this concept because it's been taught to us through a guy by the name of Terry Wardle, and the concept is this. If you had an episodic wounding experience in your life, there is nothing that will change that, no amount of conversation, therapy, anything, until you have an episodic experience that in some way overrules that. That's what happened to Roger. Dad pulls out at eight. And then another episodic experience is more important where a friend says to him, you've never had a father who left you. You have another father that's much more important. This is an episodic moment in Peter's life. And it's my conviction that the only thing that moves us from knowing something to be true to that thing becoming real is an episodic experience. I know some of you want to go back and say, okay, Chuck, what kind of episodic experience is it going to get to move you being overweight from true to real? My doctor has a couple of suggestions. I'm not going there. Here's what happens, though. When something that is true becomes real for us, we're able to love more freely. There's a second thing that happens. We're able to love more fully. I'm able to serve more freely. I'm able to serve more freely. Each time that Peter, that Christ inquires of P Peter's commitment to love, he responds with a different assignment. The first is, okay, Peter, if you love me, feed my lambs. The second is, Okay, Peter, if you love me, take care of my sheep. And the third is, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Every one of us here today knows what it is to serve in a less than passionate way. I came here really early this morning, and I watched Robin and this team up front. I said to Robin after the rehearsal, I said, I want to be here someday when you really get passionate about what you do. <laughs> Like, even in rehearsal, they're over the top. Why? Because when you know what you're singing is not only true, but it's real for you, you're able to serve more freely. Open hands, full hearts. We have been so profoundly shaped by the encounter we've had with Christ 
that we're able to love more fully, serve more freely, and finally this concept. I'm able to anticipate more eagerly. I'm able able to look into the future and say, I wonder what surprising great thing God has for me up ahead. Um, I kind of was born just after the earth crossed hard, and so I'm I'm getting to that stage in my life. I, I have a friend who says there's three stages in life, youth, middle age, and you're looking really good these days. And I, I get a lot of you're looking really good these days. And um, so it's made me very aware. And recently I was asked to do the funeral of a woman that I had come to appreciate and admire. She was 86 years of age. She had multiple battles with cancer. But the thing that impressed me as we went through her funeral service was this. There's one thing that marked Beth's life above all other things, and it was this. She not only knew that heaven was true, she knew that heaven was real. And it was profoundly clear from everybody who spoke at her funeral that there was no doubt that the marker of Beth's life was that at some point she had an encounter with Christ that moved heaven. Because I don't know what it's like for you, but these days when I am asked to do a funeral for somebody or be involved in the loss of somebody's life, it's almost inevitably that inevitable that somebody's going to talk about them being in heaven. And it's almost like it's assumed to be true. But for many of those people, it's not real. I want to close with this story, and I apologize because I've, I have too much sports running through my veins, and this is a sports story. But I don't know if many of you know the name Monty Williams, but Monty Williams has not only been a head coach in the National Basketball League, but more recently assistant coach with that Oklahoma City Thunder. His wife, at the age of 44, was killed in an accident with an impaired driver. And at the funeral of his wife, Ingrid, Monty was speaking. He said this, I just want to remember, I just want to remind all of you here this morning that we haven't lost Ingrid because when you lose somebody, you don't know where they are. I know exactly where Ingrid is. And I, I long for the day when I can join her in heaven. I want to suggest this. That if Monty Williams, when he found out that his wife had been killed in that accident, knew heaven was true, but didn't know it was real, he couldn't have gone there. In his tribute to her, he couldn't have stood and said, we don't have to worry about Ingrid being lost. We know exactly where she is. I long to be with her one day. My experience in church is this. The number one complaint I faced as a pastor was, I don't feel like I'm being fed these days. I just had this Pac-Man picture. Feed me, feed me, feed me. That's my shadow side coming out. And when a person would say that to me, I'd say this. 
especially if they're married, I'd say, is there something you could know, you know currently that you could be doing to enhance your marriage, but you're choosing not to do it for some reason? And I, I had, can tell you truthfully, I've never met a single person who told me, well, I, sorry, I did, I met one. Psychologically disturbed. Um, <laughs> I never met a person who honestly couldn't say, yes, there's something I know that could enhance my marriage, but I'm not doing it at this moment. I've never, never met a single Christian who didn't know something to be true that they're currently not doing. And the reason they're not doing it is because they, it isn't real yet. So I'm just going to close with prayer and I'm going to ask you to do this. Just take a moment to examine your heart and simply ask the Lord, is there something in my life that I know is true but it needs to become real because I need to do something about it? And the last time I asked a group of people to pray this, I was astounded that afterwards one guy would come to me and say, you know what, I retired too early and I knew that and it's crippled my family. But today it became real for me and I need to go back to work. And I had a young woman in tears come to me and say, I walked out of my marriage three weeks ago. And I know that wasn't what God wanted me to do. It was not an abusive marriage. It was just I'd grown tired of it. And I need to go back and rebuild that. So I know there's a work God wants to do. There's a work he wants to do in my life. To move some of the things I know to be true to a place where they're real so that something gets done about it. Will you join me in this prayer? Father, I have work to do. And there are others here this morning that would, in honesty, acknowledge to you there's work to be done. We know something true to be true. But until it becomes real, so we're asking you to do this. Take that one thing that we know to be true that we're not doing anything about right now and encounter us in a way that makes it real. Because it will open up our lives to all kinds of new possibilities. To love more freely, to serve, to love more fully, serve more freely. And to anticipate more eagerly what you have in store. Well, I can't do that work in my life, let alone in anyone else's. So we ask you, through the Holy Spirit, Come and show us where it is we need to move truth to real. For Christ's sake.